0: Well good morning to you. Good to be back with you guys. Missed you past couple weeks, so it's a, it's a joy to be back. And uh, to begin this book of Jude with you. So if you didn't see in the announcements over the next three weeks, we're going to be studying the, the book of Jude, second to last book uh, in the New Testament. So I encourage you over the next couple of weeks just to be reading through and, and studying. Uh, this morning we're going to be looking a lot at the beginning of the book and uh, the next couple of weeks going to be meditating more on, on the end. But uh, let's, uh, let's go to the Lord once more in prayer and then we will, we will come to his word. Father, we are ever grateful that You give us life, that You give us the grace of, of just being able to come together in a place where, um, where we have freedom to proclaim Your Word, and we are thankful for that, that You have given us that freedom in this, this season uh, of life, and we pray that we would be good stewards of that. We thank You for Your Word that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, that... Uh, that both slays us in our sin, but also rescues us and points us to Christ. And we, we thank You for Your Word. And Father, we pray that this morning as we come to a Word that is, that is weighty, that You would help us to receive it well. That You would help us to hear. That Lord, that you would, you would guard this church from error. That You would guard this church from the evil one's tactics and his ploys to seek to kill, destroy, to to steal and to destroy. Father, we pray that you would protect your name and you would protect your church this morning. We pray it all in the name of the living Lord Jesus. And everyone said, Amen. Well, the year was 1733 and revival was beginning to spread. The Congregational Church of Northampton, Massachusetts was uh, it was a small, kind of unimpressive church, but it was home to a, a faithful pastor and theologian by the name of Jonathan Edwards. And in those days, Edwards saw, saw God work amazingly through the sermons that he was preaching, including one of uh, the famous ones that you may have heard of, uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And God used the faithful preaching of his word to to start this wave of revival that we now know as the Great Awakening. In those days, that church also hosted the great evangelist George Whitfield, who had, who had heard of the, the many conversions that God was bringing about, and he, he wanted to preach in that pulpit as well, and, and he did. The, North, uh, the Congregational Church of Northampton was, it was a beacon of light in those days, in the midst of a very dark land. In that pulpit, Christ was exalted and, and the gospel, it was powerfully proclaimed. And because God's word was preached there, marriages were healed and sinners turned away from their rebellion and, and children who were wandering came home and God, God did what he does. He saved sinners. He used that church mightily. It was a faithful church. Today, however, if you were to drive into Northampton, Massachusetts, you'd find a a tall, uh, stone, gothic-looking cathedral, which Mark's now named as the first churches of Northampton. Though it's not the same building, and though it's not uh, the same name, it's the same church that to this day claims to be the home of Jonathan Edwards. It's sad, however, that What you find there isn't what you would have found so many years ago. The words that are proclaimed there from the pulpit now are not filled with Scripture, but rather are marked by man's wisdom. On their website, there's an address from 1999 from from a pastor who, who spoke there about how the biblical ideas of Edwards that were taught in those days are, quote, not easy to live with and are no longer things that move us that his theology is tough to embrace because it's bleak and ungenerous, talking about the idea that people are sinners and they need a Savior. And there's no great urgency for us today. This church that once boasted of the glory of God and proclaimed the gospel, now it claims itself to be an open and affirming congregation that boasts of homosexual acceptance and a theologically liberal interpretation of the scriptures how in the world can a church go from being a place where god's glory is proclaimed and his spirit is filling that place and people are turning from their sin to all of us i mean not all of a sudden but but now today become a place where his spirit might not even dwell there at all. How does, that, how does that happen? Now, certainly God chooses to bless whom he will, but it is also clear that God blesses a church that will defend the truth. God, God delights in a people who will stand up for his name and will proclaim the gospel as he has given it. So in the next few weeks, what we're going to be doing is we're going to be considering what it means to be a church that contends for the truth, that contends for the faith, while at the same time trusting and and knowing that it is Christ himself who keeps us. So, if you have your Bibles, why don't you turn with me to the book of Jude. If you didn't bring a Bible, look for one nearby or snuggle up next to somebody who has one, and um, it's going to be helpful for you to to follow along. We're basically going to be going verse by verse through here. Jude is the, the second to last book of the Bible, so if you hit Revelation, you've gone just a little bit too far. And as you're going to see, as we're going to see, as we work through this book, that this is, this is a weighty word. As I've been preparing this and thinking about this sermon this morning, this is a, a weighty word about the danger of, of false teachers and the duty that Christians have to defend the truth that God has given us. Now to help us get a little bit of context for the book, let's look at the first two verses where we're going to learn about the author and the audience. Verse 1 says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. So first, we see that the author is Jude. He says he's the, the, the brother of James. Now, it's, it's widely believed that the James that he mentions here is, is the half-brother of Jesus, which makes Jude also the half-brother of Jesus. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm writing a letter to a church, and I'm the half-brother of Jesus, I might find a way to work that in. Okay, just so you know, this is who I am. But that's not what Jude does. He he doesn't come like that. Rather, he's not that kind of man. He comes, he comes humbly. He's not here to make people think much of him, but rather he wants people to think much of the Lord. You also see that in the fact that he calls himself there in verse 1, a servant of Jesus Christ. He isn't coming clamoring for, for power or authority or stature. He knows his place in his place. It's that of a servant. According to, to John chapter seven, this same Jude, along with Jesus' other brothers, they used to mock Jesus and make fun of him for his claims to be the savior of the world. But after Jesus' death and resurrection, Jude, he believed. He believed he had been set free from from slavery, and now he sees himself as a servant of the Savior, the Living Lord Jesus. Now, this is really important as we begin to work our way through this this book, because as we're going to see, this is the exact opposite posture of the false teachers that were going on in in this day and coming after this this church. The false teachers that were that were making their way into this congregation were were characterized by pride and and serving themselves rather than the humility that serves Christ and serves others. So that's our author. It's it's Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, a humble servant of Jesus Christ. Next there in verse 1, I also want you to see who his audience is or who he's writing to. Look again at verse 1. To those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. We don't know exactly uh, who this or where this church was was located, but but we do know it's a church that are made up of people who he says, notice there are are the called, the loved, and the kept. Now, each of these words are in the, the perfect passive tense, which what that means is there's something that happened to them in the past that has ongoing effects. There's something that happened to them in the past that has ongoing effects that's still true of them even today. And this helps us understand what a a Christian is. So a Christian is somebody who has been called by God in the past. They've been pulled out of the kingdom of darkness and now brought into the kingdom of light. And even now, God is still calling them to himself. They are also somebody who is loved. That they were loved in the past in the sense that, that Christ laid down his life for them on the cross. And now he has brought them to himself and now continues to show his love by being the good shepherd who leads them along towards heaven. They are called, they are loved, but they are also here kept by God. Jesus promises that the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. Jesus said, no one, I'm the good shepherd and nobody, nobody's going to snatch any of my sheep out of my hand. They're mine. He promises that he will keep them. And Jesus, Jesus keeps his word. So Christians, they are called, they are loved, and they are kept. And we'll think more about that next week. But, but that's important now as we come to this heart of the letter because Jude is watching this church whom Jesus graciously shed his blood for. And he sees that these, these false teachers have come in and they're beginning to deceive people. They're teaching things that that aren't true, and they're trying to get people to follow after them. They're using people to line their pockets and to to satisfy their perverse uh, pleasures. So Jude gives this letter. The the outline that we'll be be using this morning is that in verses 3 through 19, we're going to see that the response to all of this is that the church must contend for the faith. The church must contend for the faith. Then we'll look, and that's where we're going to spend most of our time this morning, just so you know. Okay? Then in verses 20 through 23, which we'll spend most of our time next week looking at, the church must be kept in God's love. And then finally, verses 24 through 25, which we'll look at more in two weeks, the church is kept for God's glory. So let's look first at the fact that the church, the church must contend for the faith. Verse 3. This serves as kind of a theme verse for the whole book. Verse 3 says, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. As we hear this, we we should sense Jude's pastoral heart. He loves this church and and he wanted to write them a letter like like Romans or Ephesians that just that just glories in what God has done through Christ on on the cross and their salvation that they have in him but but he's a servant and the holy spirit led him to write about a more pressing matter that this church needed to they needed to wake up and they needed to contend for the faith you see As a church, we are a people who have been entrusted with truth from God. We have the good news of the gospel that tells us how how Jesus came and and he died for sinners, and that he rose from the dead, and that, that now he promises that any and all who will turn away from their sin and will come to him, that he will forgive their sins, all of their sins, and reconcile them to God. That's good news. And the church, the church is entrusted with that kind of news about Christ and about what he's done. And we are to be servants and stewards of this word. We're to be called faithful servants and stewards. Now, to be a faithful servant and steward of this, this truth that we have been entrusted with, we, we should proclaim it. So a church isn't just a place where a bunch of people kind of get together and we hear stuff and we're like, amen, preacher, that's good. Uh, and that's it. But rather, we receive truth so that we can go out and proclaim truth to the world around us. But not just proclaim it, but also, and as the emphasis of this letter is, to protect it. We have to protect the truth. Not that God needs us and he's up there going like, come on guys, I'm in trouble. It's nothing like that. But, but part of the responsibility of stewards of God's word is that we stick to what he gives us. He gives a word to his his people. And this congregation needed to hear it because false teachers had infiltrated the congregation and they were calling people to turn away from that truth that they'd received from the Lord. Now, what should a church do if someone comes in and begins teaching false ideas about God? Should they just be open-minded and say, Hey, listen, it's a free country, here's the microphone. Should we withhold correction to make sure that, that we don't offend anybody because we want to be a place you know, that doesn't offend people? Or, or, or should we look, you know, look the other way for the sake of peace so that maybe they can say things that are more politically and socially correct? Is, is that the response that a church should have to people who teach false ideas? Jude says no. He says no. He says the church cannot and must not be passive when it comes to error. But rather, verse 3, we are to contend for the faith. Contend for it. The word contend means to struggle or to fight for something. It's the word used of an, of an athlete or a, of a soldier who's striving with exertion after something. So what that means is that when lies about God and lies about the gospel pop up, The church has the responsibility to contend for the faith. We must stand up and speak up with grace and humility. I'm not saying, listen, we need a bunch of just arrogant Bible thumpers who are slamming people in the face with the word. That's not at all what I'm saying. But we need to contend for the faith graciously and humbly, but also courageously and and clearly. This is part of our job. We must not compromise what the Bible says, but rather we must contend for it because God has spoken and he has given his word to us. Okay, so if that's, if that's true, if that's what we're supposed to do, then, then what do we need to know about, about these, these false teachers? Um, what do we need to know about them and what, what God says will happen to them? Well, from here down through verse 19, we're going to see four descriptions about these false teachers and what God declares is going to happen to them. So, as the church contends for the faith, be aware that first, false teachers appear godly, but they pervert the truth. False teachers appear godly, but they pervert the truth. Look at, look at verse 4. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ our only sovereign and Lord. One of the characteristics, common characteristics of a false teacher is that at first they appear godly. But the longer that you listen, the clearer it becomes that, that they're teaching twisted truths. Not, not exactly the whole truth, or they're, they're twisting it in a way that, that serves purposes that they have. And I want you to notice something about the way that they got into the church. Notice verse 4. It says they have secretly slipped in among you. Or another translation might say they, they have crept in unnoticed. These people didn't arrive on some kind of, you know, with the entourage and some kind of, you know, red carpet or, you know, some kind of extravagant entrance that drew all kinds of attention to themselves. But rather, they were stealthful. They appeared spiritual. They sounded mature. They seemed to be well-versed. They seemed like they were just one of us. In December of 2000, there was a group that later became known as the Texas Seven that escaped from prison in in Kennedy, Texas, which became big news for us because we were in Texas at the time. And um, they were on the run for about a month and they couldn't find them. Does anybody happen to remember what their cover was during the time that they were hiding out? Might not have been big news up here. Uh, They posed as Christian missionaries and they hid out in a church. So they went to every church function, and they were there, and the church just welcomed right in. They were this group of missionaries. You see, this group of prisoners had gone to chapel services while they were in prison, and they had learned the lingo. They learned what to say and how to say it and how to sound spiritual. So when they came into this church, they slipped right in, and they thought, they're just one of us. Delray Baptist Church... As, as you guys begin this process of, of, of seeking the Lord, and, and for some of you, continuing this process of, of seeking the Lord and wanting to see this church grow, I just want you to be aware, this is not so you look like, at the crazy eye with everybody who walks in the church, but, but, but just be aware that false teachers love situations like this. Where there's there's a situation where they could probably easily come in and grab influence and, and easily get opportunities to teach and to lead something and to teach something. So I want you to know that just, just know that. And it's it's the responsibility of the congregation and, and of the elders to make sure that we keep our, our eyes and our ears, our ears open. So it's it's good for a church to be cautious and to be slow to lay hands on somebody. You need to be discerning and, and, and and prayerful. Because this is, this is how they, they come in. And, and when they come in, he says here in verse 4 that they they pervert the grace of God. And they deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Now what does it mean that they pervert the grace of God? As I mentioned a moment ago, the, the good news of the gospel is that Jesus died for sin. So, so hear that this morning. Jesus died for sinners. That's what He came to do. He came to die for the worst of sinners and those who don't think they're the worst, but are. He came to die for them. He took God's wrath for them. And He rose from the dead. And now, He forgives all of your sin, if you come to Him. Every one of your sins. And He gives you His Spirit, and you are sealed until the day of redemption. That is true of a Christian. You are free. what the false teachers like to do is they like to take that idea of you're free and you're forgiven and you didn't do anything to earn it or deserve it and to twist that and to begin to say things like well it doesn't really matter what you do after you become a christian it, it, it doesn't really matter if you're out getting drunk or you're out having sex with people outside of marriage or you're, you want to divorce your spouse for whatever reason or if you're a gossip or a slander. That, it, it does, it's on the cross. It doesn't matter. You can just live however you want. I just want you to know that whatever that is, that's not Christian. That is a perversion. That's a twisting of the good news of the grace of God. The good news of the grace of God... If it gets on you, it changes you. You're all kinds of different. You begin to hate the things that you used to love, and you begin to love the things that you used to hate. Grace changes you. Forgiven? Yes. Free? Yes. But free unto God, not to go back to live like somebody who's, who's never been affected. The Bible says a man's born again. A woman's born again. You're a new person which means we live new lives. But these teachers, they know. They know they can get a following if they relax the requirements of Christ and just give a half-truth and twist the gospel to be, to be something that, that it isn't. And not only do they distort the gospel of grace, but also it says here in, in verse 4 that they denied Jesus Now, we don't know exactly what it was that these these people were saying. We don't have any of of their letters. But what we do know is that they were teaching false ideas about the Lord Jesus Christ. I mean, whether it's the way the Jehovah's Witnesses teach that that Jesus was created, or the way that that Mormons teach that Jesus is, in fact, the the, the brother of Satan who became God, or whether it's like the theologians that now are in the church in Northampton, that we started our, our time talking about, who say that Jesus is just a good man and just a good teacher. All of those are ways of denying Jesus. And he says, that's what false teachers do. They they appear godly, but they pervert the truth. They love sin, so they twist grace to allow them to sin freely. And they think the The Jesus of the Bible is is too harsh for their liking. Now, they like the whole, you know, love your neighbors, yourself stuff, so we're going to keep that, but we're going to give Jesus a makeover so that he's more acceptable and more easy to live with, as it were. That's That's a deadly and dangerous step. And the church has to be very aware that if that's happening in your midst, the church has to contend for the faith. Now, they may have slipped into the church unaware, but heaven is not unaware. Heaven is not unaware of what is happening. Heaven, heaven sees. The Lord of glory, he knows all things. And in verses 5 through 7, he gives three examples from the Old Testament of what God does to those who rebel against him. Verse 5 says, Though you already know all this, I want to remind you, So if you're thinking, Preacher, I heard this one. Jude says, I know you did, but I'm telling you again. I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority, but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. What does it say that God did with those who rebelled against him? In each of those three examples that he gives from the Old Testament, he held them responsible for their rebellions. Hear this. This is not popular, but God... God does not overlook the sins of the unrepentant. Whether it's the Exodus generation, or the angels in Noah's day, or whole cities and towns, or people who twist God's scriptures. The Lord, he is a good God, and because he is good, he judges sin. Now, the idea of God judging sin is not popular. It's just, it's just not popular. Few people like to talk about judgment. I mean, it's, it's weighty. It, it offends us. For some of us, if we're honest, it scares us. I mean, I, I don't enjoy talking about hell and judgment and condemnation. It makes me sad to me. But as God's people, we believe it. We believe it. We believe it's true, and we believe it's, it's eternally true. The God of the Bible is a good God, whose Son willingly took the wrath that we deserved. That's how much God cares about sin, is that Jesus would be willing to lay down his own life to suffer for it. And this sobering reality is all the way through this letter. Verse 4, he speaks about the condemnation of those who rebel. Verse 5, that they will be destroyed. Verse 6, he speaks about the judgment of the great day. Verse 7, the judgment of eternal fire. Verse 10, that he will destroy those who rebel. Verse 11, woe to them, they will be destroyed. Verse 15, he will judge everybody and convict them all. All of these words of judgment were intended to convince this congregation Not to align with these people who are twisting the truths of God's word, but rather to contend for the faith because a day of accounting is coming for those who will not repent. So false teachers, they appear godly, but they pervert the truth. The second thing we notice about them, we're going to see in verses 8 through 10, is that false teachers have seductive ideas and they follow sinful instincts. False teachers have seductive ideas, and they follow sinful instincts. Listen to verses 8 through 10. In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies. They reject authority and heap abuse on celestial beings. Those are angels. And even the archangel Michael, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to condemn him for slander, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Yet these people, they slander whatever they do not understand, and the very things they do understand by instinct, like irrational animals, will destroy them. So another thing that we notice here about false teachers, something that normally characterizes them, is that they have seductive ideas oftentimes they'll have some kind of new intuition or they'll have some fresh word from heaven or some prophetic dream that God gave them. You see, they, they tend to have something that puts them above the normal Christian and makes the congregation dependent upon their super spiritual insights. If you've got some leader who's every time has some word from God and has got some vision, and has got some new thing, And you always find yourself having to lean into just what he's got. It should make you uncomfortable. Because that's not the way that God's designed it. Pastors are just shepherds who point to the word and say, this is what God says. So by the time someone's done a sermon, if you're going, I never would have seen that. How in the world did he get that? Sure, he may have had some great insight and that's that's fine. But the normal response should be like, yeah. I might not have seen it like that, but that's exactly what it says. God's word should be what we're leaning upon, not some kind of spooky spiritual insights. That's why when the Mormons come to your door, they have to bring something more than just the Bible. They have their own book that their own prophet, Joseph Smith, got. That's why when a Jehovah's Witness will talk to you, they want to give you watchtower literature because they claim that that, they are, that the watchtower is Jehovah's true prophet on the earth, and they're the only ones who have the right interpretation of the scriptures. This is why very often a lot of the, the preachers on TV, not that all teachers are on TV are bad, but um, oftentimes they will, they will talk about how God told them this and God told them that, and how they had this vision or an angel visited them. Now, I don't discount that God can give somebody a vision. I don't discount that God can give someone a dream. God can do whatever he wants. It's not the normal way that he's working. But the issue is that these kind of false teachers, they often cite their, these kinds of experiences to make themselves look powerful and to make themselves look authoritative so people will follow after them. And evidently, these false teachers in Jews' days, along with their prophetic dreams, were claiming to have some kind of special power over over Satan and the demons. Now, again, I believe demons and Satan are real, but the issue is that these guys claimed that they had some kind of special power in themselves over over Satan and his demons. They would speak to Satan, and they would speak to demons and, and rebuke them in their own power. I have a, a dear friend who's a, a seminary professor who was a, he was a missionary in, in Brazil for some three decades. Um, humble, godly man, loved him to death. And he, he shared with me some of the experiences just of, of what it was like in Latin America and in, and in Africa and how often you would see these teachers who would just claim to have authority over the devil. And that if you were having any kind of problem, you need to come to them, and they would just rebuke Satan and get Satan off of your back, and all of your, all of your problems would go away because they had this special power in themselves. You've probably seen that here in the United States as well. I know I have. But, but what Jude wants us to see here is how, how foolish these, these false teachers are. And he does it in verse 9 by referencing a scene in a non-inspired book that records an, an evidently true event where Michael the archangel is disputing with Satan over the body of Moses. And the irony that Jude wants us to see there is that, that Michael, the only angel in the Bible who's called an archangel, even he won't condemn Satan in his own power. Instead, the most authoritative angel in heaven says what? The Lord rebuke you. Even this great angel will put himself underneath the authority of God Almighty. That's the only way he's going to confront Satan. Yet these false teachers, they have this, this spiritual arrogance and this self-promotion that prove that they're not out for God's glory, but rather they're out to seek their own. And Jude wants his, his hearers and us to be aware that these false teachers, they have sinful instincts. Our sinful nature, what it does is it wants to reject authority. It doesn't like, that's that's why we rebelled against Jesus for so long. We didn't want Jesus ru- ruling over us. I'm like, no, I like my life. I want to do things the way I want to do. You see this everywhere. I mean, everything. I mean, SpongeBob and like, you know, I mean, any, any, anything. Any TV show, any song, it's about bucket authority. It's about doing your own thing. These guys embody that. They don't love the idea of being a humble servant like Jude, who's under the authority of Jesus. Who says, Lord, thy will, whatever you want. Unlike a servant, they seek their own will and their own way. And in the end, verse 8, their rebellion pollutes their bodies. You see, one of the things that, that we have to remember about sin is that sin always promises to make things better. It always promises to make things better. But it never does. It always lies to us and steals from us and destroys from us. There's not one of us in here that could come up here and testify about the way that sin's been so good to me. That's just not going to happen. Because we would talk about all the things that came afterwards and the way that it wrecked our lives. Because we understand, because of the grace of God and because of God's word, that, that God's authority is a good authority. That, that his word, that it leads us in, 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 into green pastures and besides still waters. That God's a good God and that his word, guardrails are good when you're driving on a cliff that would go off to death. God's word is good and his authority is good. But these guys, in their natural instinct, they say, ah, forget that. I've got something better. So anytime I hear some false or some, some preacher, some teacher who's telling me, to listen, it doesn't matter the way you live, do that, or is trying to get me to love having new cars and new houses and new this and new that and getting me to love this world, when I hear that, that terrifies me because I loved the world for a long time and it did nothing but destroy my life. That's probably the same testimony for any of you in here who are Christians. The world does nothing good. The lies of sin do nothing good. So any teacher who wants to point you back to stir up things for your flesh... It's dangerous. you got to be real careful. Now, what's the Lord's response to someone who rejects his power and perverts his word? Verse 11. Woe to them, he says. Woe to them, which is a word of judgment. Why? Verse 11. They have taken the way of Cain. Remember Cain? From Genesis chapter 4, who was jealous of his brother's righteousness. So what did he choose to do? Rather than change his unrighteousness, he chose to murder his brother. Jude says that these false teachers, that they're following his example. It's a really sobering idea. I mean, we have felt afresh this, this week with the things in Colorado. And the shooting there. How horrific. How horrific it is for a human to take another human's physical life. We've felt that afresh this week. And we pray that God will comfort comfort those families. But I want to say something that I believe is very true. That as horrific as it is to take someone's physical life, to destroy someone's spiritual life, which has eternal ramifications, is even worse. Jesus says that it would, in fact, be better to have a millstone tied around your neck and you thrown into the middle of the sea than to lead even one person away from the truth of the gospel. Jude says these false teachers, that's what they're doing. They're leading people away from the purity of the gospel of grace. He says also in verse 11 that they have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. Remember, Balaam from Numbers 22 and 23, he was the prophet for hire who was willing to to say false things about God for some pocket change. Now listen, well he he says those guys are doing the same thing that Balaam did. They're selling out. Listen, if you want a get-rich-quick scheme, you can use God to get rich. You can do it. All you've got to do is make a bunch of promises and tell people that if you just give a bunch of money that God is going to bless you. It's just a seed of faith. You've got to go ahead and give a seed of faith and God, he's going to pay all your bills. I've heard people say, get Jesus on that credit card right now and he's going to pay it off tenfold. I've heard that from people's mouths. No. But you can get rich off that if you want to. And all you've got to do is when Jesus doesn't pay up like he promised, Blame it on on the people and say, listen, you must just not had enough faith. If you had enough faith, Jesus said you move a mountain. He can move that bill, amen? That's dangerous. And that's deadly. And for people who are desperate, I mean, for those of us, most of us have been in seasons where the the debt is heavy. And what are we going to do? You can get into somebody with those kinds of lies. And he says, that's what these people are doing. They're looking for for money. They want to trade in the grace of God for bars of gold. It's a deadly trade-off. Verse 11, he also said, They've been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. You remember Numbers 16, Korah led a rebellion against Moses, whom God had appointed as the leader of his people. And you remember what happened to Korah. This is one of those, those stories that kind of scars your children when you read it Read it to them. You remember what, what happened? God opened up the ground and swallowed them up. He and all of his followers. So what these false teachers are doing is they're, they're saying, listen, God's word, forget it. These, tre- these teachers whose God's appointed, forget them. And Jude says, they're just tempting God to open up the ground and swallow them up in judgment. And he says, that's what's going to happen to them. So false teachers they have seductive ideas but but they also have they have selfish intent and selfish motives that drive them. Thirdly, false teachers talk a big game but in the end they deliver nothing but pain. False teachers they talk a big game but in the end they deliver nothing but but pain. One of the hardest things for for me as a pastor is to watch um, the fallout from, from false teaching. Uh, I know a family in, in Texas who um, they, were, they were members of a church for a number of years and they, they just got so involved there and they loved the teachers' preaching. And, but over time, they discovered that this, this teacher and this leader had, had lied and had deceived and had stolen and had abused countless people in the church and that he was just using the congregation and to watch them as they came to our church, to try to, to pick up the pieces and, and to know that God commands them to trust the leaders, but, but they don't know if they can trust leaders because they've been hurt. And for them to open up words, the, the word of the Lord and to find promises from God and to everything in them to want to grab a hold of those and to hold on to them, but for so many years they had been holding on the promises that were lies and they, it, was just, it was hard for them. And some of you, Matt, may be the same kind of experience that you have right now. It's a sad thing to watch, the the dangers of of false teaching. They promise much but bring nothing but pain. And and Jude here in verses twelve and thirteen he gives six examples from nature to show what these people are like. Verse twelve he says they are like blemishes at your love feast, eating with you without the slightest qualm. So a love feast was a meal that they would often have afterwards, where they'd take the Lord's supper many times. And the, the word here for uh, blemish. It can also be translated hidden reef, depending on your translation there, which it, it paints this picture, a hidden reef does, of, of this thing that's below the surface so you can't really see, that a ship who's coming in to find safety and harbor gets the bottom of it ripped out, and it sinks, and everybody on board goes down. He says, the false teachers who are among you, they sit there at the fellowship meals, promising love and fellowship, but just like Judas, they're plotting to turn against you and to bring you down. Verse 12, he says, They're shepherds who feed only themselves. Probably a direct quote from Ezekiel 34 when God condemns the leaders who only care about themselves and leave the flock to starve. They, wish, they, they withhold the provision of God's word to line their pockets. Then in verse 12, he says, They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind. 2009 when we still lived in texas there were these these wildfires that came through which is it was terrifying I mean like you had the whole you had these fields and these these little hills were just on fire and I I remember they were getting close to our the edge of our town where we lived and um, at the beginning this 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 huge storm cloud it rolled in and you could just feel the expectation in in the town people were like yes they've been praying for rain they've been praying for god to put out these fires And then the storm cloud came, and it just passed right over. And not a drop fell. He says these false teachers are the exact same way. They promise much, but they leave you thirsting. Because they withhold the water of life that Jesus gives. Trying to give their their own. Verse 12, he says, They're autumn trees, without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They have no spiritual fruit, and they have no spiritual root. Verse 19 says they don't even have the Holy Spirit. They are spiritually dead, and they can do nothing for anyone. Verse 13, he says, they are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame. You ever been to the beach and seen where the waves have rolled in, and there's, there's debris that's left there, kind of a line of it, and then the foam that's there, and oftentimes it's, it's, it's stained with, with the dirt or whatever it may be? He says that's, that's what these people leave behind. The foam and the shame that's on the, the shore of their ministries are all these people's lives that are wrecked. A number of years ago, we were doing some ministry in the Amazon region of Peru. We went down and we had gone up the river a number of hours to, to this village that was there. It was a sizable r- village. We got off and we came there to do some, some evangelism. And We found that the people were, were really standoffish. What we came to learn was that a few months earlier, one of the famous televangelists had been through there, and he had promised the people that if they would give all of their money, that they would, they would see no more sickness, and that they would get wealthy, and that they would have no more miscarriages, and that their, their cattle wouldn't die off. And the villagers bought it. And the false prophets robbed them blind. We were there trying to clean up the mess and explain to them what the Bible really says. This is what what false teachers do. And finally, in verse 13, he says, They are wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved for ever. People in the ancient world didn't didn't have smartphones, they didn't have GPSs. Instead, they used stars to help them navigate. He says, These stars are not reliable guides. They're just going off into eternity. So these false teachers, they talk a big game, but they deliver nothing but pain. And in verses 14 through 15, Jude, Jude quotes here from another inspired, non-inspired book that recounts the life of Enoch. And he says here, uh, of Enoch, verse 14, The seventh from Adam prophesied about them, meaning these false teachers. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all their ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness. and all the defiant words, ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Again, judgment. Now listen, as I was preparing this, I was like, man, this is weighty. But most of our attention so far has been focused on the false teachers, and this warning again is to them. But I, I do want to pause right here for just a moment. And I want to ask us to to consider our own lives. To realize that this day of judgment that is being promised for these false teachers is coming. But that's the same day of judgment that every single one of us and every other person who has ever lived or will ever live is going to encounter. A day when we will stand before the holy God who is nothing but perfect and we who are not perfect but who are ungodly ourselves, will stand before. Are you ready for that day? Are are you ready for that day to meet the Holy One of Heaven? And I don't mean, have you gone to church your whole life? And I don't mean, are you a good person? And I don't mean, can can you recount some Bible stories? I'm talking about, Are you spotless? The only way a person can be spotless before a holy God is by trusting in the one who was spotless, Jesus, who took all of our sin and all of our shame and all of our judgment upon himself and took the wrath that that all those who are die and don't have their sins forgiven will receive. And then he rose from the dead. And then any now who will be in him through faith on that day, they will be received as spotless because they are dressed in the righteousness of Christ. That is good news. And I want to encourage you this morning that, that if you don't know what I'm talking about, you've never heard that, or you're, you're afraid, that I, I don't know that I'd be ready to stand before the Lord of glory. Please don't leave without talking to myself or one of the other people who are here. We'd be happy to help you understand what it means to be, to be a Christian. Fourthly, and and finally, when we look at these things about false teachers, false teachers raise doubts and bring division among God's people. The church is supposed to be a place where God's people are unified around Christ and to be a, a family where we love each other and we serve each other and we build each other up. But we've got to know that Satan hates the church. He hates a church that will love each other because he knows it's a witness for the glory of Christ. So these false teachers, they come in to try and bring division. Verse 16, these people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. Verse 19, these are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the spirit. These are the people who are, who are known as the ones who are always raising questions about the pastors and the decisions that they're making. Which, I'm not saying you can't question your pastors. That's fine. You should do that. But if you think your ministry is to stir up doubt and raise questions among everybody else, that's a bad ministry to have. And that's what these people are characterized by. They like to to stir up contention and raise disagreements. Along the way, flattering people so that when division does arise, they've got people who are on their side. This should not catch us by surprise. He says in verse 17, Dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ foretold. They said to you, In the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. Jude says, Listen, we were warned that these kinds of people are coming. And our job is to contend for the faith. Now, You might be wondering why? Why would I, if if I get three sermons, why am I, why am I preaching this one as the first one? Because there's two things I'm very certain about this church. The first one is that I am certain that God desires to be glorified here. I am certain that God desires to be glorified here. I believe he wants this place to be a place that proclaims his word. He wants this place to be a place where we, we raise our children up in grace and truth, shepherding them their hearts towards Christ. I believe he wants this place to be a church where, where teachers and leaders are raised up. I believe he wants this, this church to be one that, that plants other churches nearby and, and across the world. I believe he wants this this church to be a, a place that is famous for their love for one another and their love for people who don't know Jesus, who, yeah, they totally disagree with everything that I believe in the way I live, but they love the heck out of me. I believe he wants us to be that kind of place. God can be glorified in that kind of place. The second thing I'm certain about is that Satan will oppose this work. The second thing I'm certain about is that Satan will oppose this work. Satan, the one who is behind these false teachers, he hates God. And he hates Jesus. And he hates the gospel. And he hates the church. And he hates this church. And he hates you who follow Christ. Satan is opposed to God. He has been for a long time. And he will be until that day that he is defeated and thrown into the lake of fire. He wants us to compromise on speaking truth. He wants us to, to be afraid to evangelize. He wants us to not take the time to, to be discipling one another. He wants us to not share fellowship with one another. He wants us to close our mouths when all of society around us says, you're bigoted and you're narrow-minded and you can't tell me the way I'm supposed to live. He wants us to be arrogant in our views and stand up and be like, no, you're just wrong and we're right. When that's not at all the posture of the gospel. The posture of the gospel is like, hey, we're all kinds of messed up. Welcome to come in and be messed up with us. Jesus fixed messed up people. Satan hates that. So the reason that I think this word is important for us is that as we think about what this church is going to be about for the future, we need to be very aware that this is one of the ways that Satan likes to creep in. And it ought to make us very humble and have a posture that seeks the Lord and trusts in him. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to read the verses that we'll be studying for the next two weeks just to conclude our time this morning and to set our hearts upon what it is that we're to be doing as we're contending for the faith verse 20 through 23 the church must keep in God's love. Verse 20 says, "But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life." So he says we're to be a people who keep ourselves in God's love and are longing for that day when Jesus is coming. But it's not just us, but it's us together. So verse 22 Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others, show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by the corrupted flesh. So as we run this race together, there's going to be some of us who doubt, and there's going to be some of us who get caught up.